Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Those loons are uh, are pretty great, and they indicate at the beginning of another episode of Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, your creator and host, and speaking of loons, with me again is our good friend, Matthew. The Ed McMahon of True Crime Podcasts. That is true. You are you are Ed to my Johnny. I should say here. <laughs> are you Robin to my Batman, then? No. No, Robin's a little. You're shorter than I am. It's anyone, true. Anyone's That's Robin, true. It's you. Yeah. <laughs> The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime in the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. The most treasured name in podcasts. Whoa, wow. There you go. You and your advertising references are fantastic. I'm a walking advert. <laughs> Between 1974 and 1980, a group of three mask-wearing Canadian outlaws named Stephen Reed, Patrick Paddy Mitchell, and Lionel Wright robbed at least 140 banks and armored cars in Canada and the United States in well-planned, precisely timed, and careful executed heists, making off with a total of more than $15 million in cash, gold, and other valuables. This is Dark Poutine Episode 174, The Stopwatch Gang. The second of nine children born to Douglas Reed and Sylvia Shields, Stephen Douglas Reed was born in Massey, Ontario on March 13, 1950. The Reeds were not wealthy, but Douglas Reed did his best, working hard to take care of his large family. Young Stephen was a good-looking lad of Irish and Ojibwe descent. He was a charismatic and active kid doing what kids in small rural towns do, exploring and running around the countryside with his young buddies. From Greg Weston's book, The Stopwatch Gang, comes a summary of a psychologist's report on Stephen Reed. Quote, Various tests have revealed Stephen Douglas Reed to be an intelligent person, well-adjusted psychologically, and someone who seems to display good insight into his own personality. He comes from a tight-knit family and was considered a good student with high potential. However, shortly after beginning his secondary school education, the subject stated he started to experiment with drugs and align himself with the, quote, hippie crowd and supporting his drug habit by a string of illegal activities, end quote. Josh Dean's article at the Atavist magazine gave a bit more detail. At 13, involved with drugs, specifically heroin, Stephen Reed ran away from home, heading west to Vancouver, there he fell in with folks on the city's notorious downtown east side. Even though he went back home to Ontario and back to school, the drugs had a strong hold over Stephen Reed, and he ran west again. Josh Dean wrote, quote, At 15, he wound up in jail for the first time after selling a dime bag of hash to a female cop. A year later, he was arrested again for drug possession and spent Christmas Eve in solitary confinement, the whole at Ocala Prison in Burnaby. I began crying and promised God if he let me out, I would never, never, ever go again near drugs or do anything illegal, Reed said. He didn't release me, end quote. Back in Ontario after his bit in Ocala, at only 17, Reed added methamphetamine to his drug use repertoire. Meth grabbed hold of the youngster and would not let go. It was then that Stephen Reed got himself a gun, 
and began robbing banks to feed his hungry addiction. After three years of robberies and other petty thefts, it was Reed's mouth that landed him in Kingston Penitentiary. He'd bragged about his criminal exploits and flashed big wads of dough around town. At 20, Stephen Reed was sentenced to a decade behind bars. Reed soon added jailbreak to his list of crimes. Just over two years into his 10-year sentence, while on a day pass, Stephen Reed slipped away when the counselor tasked to watch him was otherwise occupied. He told Josh Dean in his Atavist magazine article, quote, It wasn't hard, he said. I just went to the bathroom and climbed out the window. It was in a basement suite in Ottawa after his prison break where he'd holed up with other unsavory characters that Stephen Reed met Patty Mitchell, one of the men who'd partner with him in the crime spree he was about to embark on. Patrick Michael Mitchell also came from a large Irish Catholic family and had been born in our nation's capital on June 26, 1942. He was one of seven kids and had grown up living in a tiny basement suite on Preston Street in Ottawa's Little Italy neighborhood. Patty's dad worked for a paper company all his life. Patty had grown up rough. Like a lot of kids in the neighborhood, violence was a large part of his day-to-day. Patty spent four of his teenage years in a juvenile detention facility after his involvement in a fight that left another teenager dead. He talked about it in his book, This Bank Robber's Life. Quote, When I was 14 years old, a fight broke out at the CYO dance in the basement of my church, Our Lady of Perpetual Help. We took it outside, and one of the combatants struck his head on the sidewalk and died. Three others and myself, all teenagers, were charged with manslaughter. At the time, all I could think about was what terrible anguish I'd brought on my family and myself. Looking back now, I should have been thinking about the dreadful suffering I brought about to the family of the deceased. My parents had to hire an expensive lawyer to defend me. I was eventually convicted on a reduced charge of assault, placed on probation, and allowed to go home. Within weeks, I broke that probation and was shipped off to a juvenile training school in Guelph, Ontario. End quote. Patty's time in juvie didn't do him much good, and when he got out, he joined up with his brothers terrorizing and thieving from businesses around the city, dealing in stolen goods, forging checks, and other illicit activities. When Patty was 19, he met and fell in love with a girl named Joanne. With stars in his eyes, Patty decided he'd go straight, and he got a job. The pair were married when Patty was 20. They had a son, and Patty spent the better part of 10 years driving truck and selling pop for a soda company called Pure Spring. It was on his soda pop route that Patty met Ottawa-born Lionel Wright, who would eventually become the third official member of the Stopwatch Gang. Patty's book indicated that all the other portrayals of Lionel have gotten it wrong, so we'll go with Patty's description of Wright. Quote, I can honestly say I have never met anyone like Lionel Wright. He was 5 foot 7 inches in height and had never exceeded 130 pounds. He had a high forehead with a receding hairline, wore false teeth that wouldn't have fooled anyone, had ears that were too big for his head, and a face that was certainly not frightful, but could best be described as unattractive. There was much he could have done to improve his looks. He could have let his hair grow long and covered his ears, spent the money and acquired better false teeth, gained weight, wore higher-heeled shoes, grown a mustache or a beard, and he could have dressed more fashionably. End quote. And he's talking about a friend here. <laughs> that That's hilarious. You know, it's like uh, he's giving his sidekick like a mental makeover. Right. It's, you know, you just remind me, me of what was that show? Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. <laughs> Can you imagine like Criminal Eye for the Ugly Guy? Why don't we do this? Because we have so much time on our hands. Right. Let's do a reality TV show where criminals give people makeovers. That sounds fantastic. Ooh, orange really is your color. Let's put you in a jumpsuit <laughs> or, or a nice ankle bracelet would go with that. Oh, yes. What an accessory <laughs> that ankle bracelet would make. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he liked his friend but thought he was ugly. <laughs> That's clear. It's pretty sad. <laughs> Despite Lionel's shy, awkward, and introverted personality, he and Patty eventually became great buddies. Patty later wrote that they'd have done anything for each other, including risking their lives. After losing his job with the soda company, Patty got a phone call from Lionel, who was working nights as a clerk at a trucking company's warehouse. Lionel offered Patty a couple of cases of booze to sell, and that's when Patty went crooked again. Patty Mitchell started fencing stolen goods for Lionel, who was thieving at night. Patty got a job as an aluminum siding salesman to act as a front for the money he had coming in, 
His wife, a government worker, according to Patty, was oblivious. The pair got more brazen, and the scores got larger, and the money rolled in. Patty and Lionel were looking for a jackpot. This is when they met Stephen Reed, who'd been hiding out at a buddy's place. Patty liked Stephen right away, and he became the third man in their operation. From Josh Dean's Atavis Magazine article on the Stopwatch Gang, quote, For the next year, Reed, Mitchell, and Wright preyed on Ottawa's delivery networks, making more and more money to feed their respective appetites for racehorses, Mitchell, drugs, Reed, and prostitutes, Wright. It was not unusual for the gang to split $20,000 to $30,000 for a single day's work. Nothing in town was safe from us, Mitchell later wrote, end quote. In early 1974, the trio met an Air Canada baggage handler named Gary Coutanche. Gary was small-time, selling calculators he'd stolen while at his job, but he had information for a potentially huge score. Over beer and cards at the Belle Claire Tavern, Gary told Patty Mitchell about gold shipments that came through the Ottawa airport on their way to the Mint every month. Security was almost non-existent. In exchange for a piece of the take, Katanch provided Mitchell with the date and time the next shipment was scheduled to arrive. The heist went down on April 17, 1974, when a large shipment of gold arrived at the airport having been flown in from the Red Lake Mines. The security guard at the storage facility, 24-year-old David Brom, answered the telephone at around quarter after 11 that night. According to an Ottawa Citizen article, the voice on the other end told him that an Air Canada employee had been sent to pick up some de-icing fluid from the freight shed and that it was important that the man be given access to keep the flights running on time. Brom was still on the telephone with the mysterious caller, actually Patty Mitchell, when there was a knock at the door. Stephen Reed was the man outside, wearing a stolen Air Canada parka. The guard allowed him access, and once inside, Reed pulled out a revolver and said, This is a robbery. If you don't do everything I tell you, I'll have to kill you. End quote. The guard was handcuffed, and according to Patty Mitchell's book, a canvas bag was placed over his head while Reed worked to extract the gold from the cage it was being held in. He used a cart to wheel it to Lionel, who was waiting in the vehicle at the loading dock. Just after 20 minutes, Wright and Reed drove off with 365 pounds of gold bullion, worth $750,000 then and more like $4 million today. It was the largest gold heist in Canadian history. The trio were overjoyed and spent lavishly, but also made some investments, including purchases of a large amount of cocaine, which they began to traffic. Pretty much from the beginning, the cops knew the heist was an inside job. Kutanch quickly became their primary focus thanks to his own ineptitude as a thief. Cops also knew he was associated with Patty Mitchell, who they'd had their eye on for some time. Kutanch was arrested and folded like a lawn chair during questioning. In return for a lighter sentence, Gary gave up the trio Mitchell, Reed, and Wright as the perpetrators of the gold heist. Cops overheard Patty Mitchell talking about the gold heist via wiretaps, so they knew they were on the right track but had no physical evidence. On their arrest of Stephen Reed, still on the run after his escape from a prison a year earlier, cops found traces of gold in a box in his closet. The purity of the flakes matched exactly that of one of the gold bars that had been stolen. In March 1975, Mitchell and Wright were arrested for the robbery and cocaine trafficking, which they also conducted with the help of Kutanch. Stephen Reed's arrest followed soon after. Mitchell and Wright were both sentenced to 17 years for trafficking. Mitchell's sentence was increased by three years for possession of the stolen gold. He was overheard on a wiretap arranging to sell gold bars from the heist to a U.S. buyer. Reed was sentenced to 10 years for the robbery on top of all the time he still owed. You might think that this is the end of the story. The bad guys are behind bars. But no, they had not yet committed the crimes that would earn them the name The Stopwatch Gang and eventually earn Patty Mitchell a place on the FBI's most wanted list. And we will take a break right here. So what are your thoughts so far, Matthew, uh, on the stopwatch gang? It sounds like we have a gambling addict, a drug addict, and a sex addict. Yep. Feeding their addictions in some ways, right? Definitely. And it always amazes me just how much an addiction will rip through somebody's life and make them do shit like this and rip through lots of other people's lives. It's just incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I, am, I have examples of that in my own life. Yeah, and that being said, before the addictions, they didn't seem to quite have the moral compasses anyway. 
Right? It's like, you know, um, but, you know, and they're not very bright so far. And, you know, if they're called the stopwatch gang, I'm thinking, well, that sort of sounds smart. And I'm I'm waiting to see the intelligence behind what they're doing yet. Well, yeah, you'll see. They were very meticulous about the way they plan things. Maybe street smarts, but not a lot of common sense. And maybe practice makes perfect. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. In October of 1976, Lionel Wright escaped in a prison break with a group of other prisoners. He'd been a lucky beneficiary of someone else's planning and just happened to be in the right place at the right time, escaping through a hole in the fence that the others had made. He then made his way to Florida, where he hid out and worked at a seedy motel run by another unsavory character he'd known in Ottawa. From their first day inside, together at Millhaven Institution, or the Haven, Reed and Mitchell began plotting their escape. The prison was later famously mentioned in the tragically hip song 38 Years Old, a tune about a prison break. In an article for Robber Magazine about the 10 toughest prisons in North America, Reed later wrote of Millhaven, quote, Millhaven Institution opened prematurely in 1971 to accommodate the aftermath of the Kingston Penitentiary Riot. The guards formed a gauntlet all the way down the tea passage. As each busload of prisoners arrived there, they were beaten with oak batons all the way to their cells. No one was spared. The joint went in the crapper on opening day and stayed there. A native prisoner from the nearby area told me that the prison was built on an Indian burial ground and was therefore cursed to forever remain a place of deep and abiding human misery. I did nine years in Millhaven and nothing in my experience ever contradicted that theory. End quote. After several failed attempts at escape, including a tunnel and an attempt over the fence, the pair decided to try another tack. This time, they decided to try good behavior for a transfer to a less secure prison. It worked. Reed went first to Joyceville, a medium-security prison in Kingston, and Mitchell followed him months later. Stephen Reed was the first to escape in the summer of 1979, telling Patty Mitchell he'd come back for him. During an outing, just like his last escape, Reed dove out a bathroom window when his guard was not watching. He returned to Ottawa and went back to robbing banks until he could figure out a plan to spring Patty. On November 15, 1979, a message came to Mitchell, forwarded to him by Reed. The note said, essentially, get ready, today is the day. Patty Mitchell had heard from another prisoner that a nicotine overdose mimicked a heart attack. Patty had then stored a large amount of tobacco in a bottle of water in his cell. He had been falsely complaining of chest pains to prison medical staff for weeks, so when he collapsed in the common area, sweating like crazy and flopping around, the guards thought that Patty was having a heart attack. Mitchell was loaded onto a gurney and rushed to the nearest hospital. Mitchell was actually quite ill from the nicotine, so his performance was very convincing. The ambulance containing Patty Mitchell was diverted to a side entrance in an alley by a sign saying the ER's main entrance was undergoing repairs. A black van idled there. When the ambulance stopped and the paramedics unloaded Mitchell, two men appeared wearing scrubs and medical masks. One of the men, Stephen Reed, was brandishing a pistol. Just do as you're told or I'll blow your fucking head off, Stephen Reed ordered. The guards were forced to remove Mitchell's cuffs and then the guards were cuffed inside the ambulance. Reed carried Mitchell back to the van and the getaway driver, an accomplice from Ottawa, drove off. They ate like kings that night, celebrating their freedom. They'd soon join Lionel Wright in the United States. The pair headed to Florida and Reed and Wright started robbing banks there while Patty convalesced and enjoyed his newfound freedom. After a month, Patty was ready to go and join them. The group started with carefully planned heists of a Brinks cash pickup at a Tampa department store, which led to a number of meticulously thought-out bank robberies in Florida before the group had to migrate to the southern U.S., where they really hit their stride as professional bank robbers, frustrating the FBI as they were so quick, cautious, and slippery. They usually made inspections of their targets prior to their heists, choosing banks which were close to the road, with at least two access points, and, if possible, big glass windows with southern sunlight exposure in order for the sun to turn the windows into two-way mirrors, avoiding passers-by alerting authorities. They would wear full masks, such as former president's masks or Star Wars helmets. Another trick they employed was to add to their outfits a remarkable detail, such as a sticker or a bandana sticking out of a pocket, so that bank employees and civilians would remember just that peculiarity and nothing else of their appearance. 
The gang, who was always polite and non-violent with everyone present, usually stayed in the bank for two minutes or less, with the getaway driver listening to a police scanner waiting outside and ready to hit the road in a stolen car. San Diego was their golden goose. According to Josh Dean's Atavis article, quote, In one seven-week spree, they, they took $21,000 from a Wells Fargo, $24,000 from a Solar Credit, $19,000 from a First Bank, and $8,000 from a Bank of America. It was during this spree that the gang got their name. They were dubbed the Stopwatch Gang by U.S. media, as it was noted that usually one of the two Halloween mask bank robbers had a stopwatch hung around his neck, typically Reed. It would be checked as the robbery progressed, and they tried to be out in a mere 90 seconds, giving them time to get the cash, escape in their getaway car, change cars, and then close, even before the cops arrived at the bank. At one point, to let the heat cool down, the group split up. Mitchell went north to Washington State, and Reed and Wright began heading northeastward, robbing banks in Arizona and Arkansas. Reed and Wright ended up in Sedona, Arizona, where Mitchell joined them again. The band was back together. They began casing a bank they'd hit before, a Bank of America branch at 912 Garnet Avenue in San Diego. This time they wanted to intercept the cash from an armored car pickup that happened at a certain time, like clockwork, every week. On September 23, 1980, they put their plan into motion to pull off their largest bank heist. Patty Mitchell, acting as the getaway driver, waited outside. Stephen Reed and Lionel Wright entered the bank to wait for the arrival of the Loomis driver. They had to forego their usual rubber Halloween masks, opting for disguises that they felt would help them blend in with the other customers in the bank, pretending to do legitimate business there while they waited for what they believed would only be a few minutes. They looked ridiculous in their thick glasses, ill-fitting suits with pasted-on beards and wigs. They'd used foundation makeup to change the color of their skin. In order not to leave fingerprints, their fingertips were covered by band-aids. The Loomis truck was late. It was really late. It was a full 28 minutes behind schedule, and the robbers, known for being so quickly in and out, were sweating like pigs inside the bank as they hung around. Once the Loomis guard finally entered and collected the cash in his cart, Reed quickly made his move, revealing his 357 Magnum and sticking it in the guard's stomach, saying, This is a robbery. Don't be a hero or I'll kill you. The guard was disarmed and Reed and Wright were out the door with $283,000 U.S. The amount set a record for a bank robbery in that city. Wright was tasked with getting rid of the disguises and the other evidence, like the bank-issued bags that the cash had come in. He was usually very careful about how he disposed of these things, often burning them over a few days at different locations, but this time he slipped up. Lionel Wright dumped a garbage bag with the disguises and cash bags into the same dumpster. Worse yet, rather than wait for it to be picked up, Lionel was spooked by a cough car that parked nearby while he awaited the dumpster pickup. Not wanting to get caught with evidence that would put him away in a U.S. prison for a very long time, Wright made like a rabbit and took off. A homeless man digging through the trash in the dumpster discovered the strange items in the garbage bag and turned them over to the police, who then turned them over to the FBI. The contents of the bag were a gold mine for the FBI, who were attributing correctly this robbery to the stopwatch gang. It was the first time they'd been able to acquire so much. They had a good look at them. The entire time they were in the bank, there was a photo taken of them every 30 seconds. According to Josh Dean's Atavis magazine article, in the bag were, quote, several wigs and beards, a bottle of CoverGirl makeup, two license plates, an empty pack of Winston lights, and several Bank of America bags. Also found there were paperwork for a car rental, along with a copy of the fake license used to rent it, which had a very clear photo of a skinny man with jug ears and receding hair, end quote. That had to be Lionel. A partial print was found on one of the cash bags. One of Stephen Reed's band-aids had come off his finger due to the sweat of nervousness at the late arrival of the Loomis armored truck. The FBI ran the prints, but as Reed had yet to be arrested in the U.S., his fingerprints were not on file, so they had no idea who he was. The robbers were getting more careless, and they had a tough time laying low with all that cash and keeping their mouths shut. They loved to talk after they'd had a few drinks. A confidential informant gave their identities as Canadian bank robbers and prison escapees to the FBI as the possible perpetrators of the San Diego heist and as members of the notorious Stopwatch Gang. The FBI kept close tabs on Reed and Wright, arresting them on Halloween 1980 after getting a confirmation on Reed's prints back from Canadian authorities. 
Stephen Reed and Lionel Wright both pleaded guilty the next April and were sentenced to 20 years each for the robbery in San Diego. Wise to their pension for prison breaks, the pair were housed in separate maximum security facilities. Both were eventually returned to Canada to finish their sentences in the mid-80s. They both ended up in Millhaven. But what of Patty Mitchell, you say? Well, Patty somehow avoided capture and was in the wind. Unknown to the FBI, Mitchell had made his way to the Philippines where he was married and had a son. After 10 years on the run, Patty Mitchell was placed on the FBI's most wanted list. In the meantime, Patty Mitchell had come back to the United States, robbing banks solo on each trip and then escaping again. Patty was getting cocky. In 1994, someone recognized him while he was vacationing in Hawaii. They'd seen him on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. Rather than go back to the Philippines, Patty headed back to the States. Patty Mitchell was arrested after panicking and botching a bank robbery in South Haven, Mississippi. He was tried for bank robbery and sentenced to 65 years in Leavenworth. Stephen Reed had begun writing while serving his 21-year prison sentence at the Kent Institution in Agassiz, British Columbia, just nearby. He submitted a manuscript to the American poet and writer Susan Musgrave, then writer-in-residence at the University of Waterloo. The pair developed an ongoing correspondence, fell in love, and they married in 1986 at Kent Institution. Reed published his first novel, Jack Rabbit Parole, that year, to some success. Reed was paroled in 1987 and things were looking up for Stephen, for a while at least. He lived with his wife and her daughters in Sydney, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island. He began teaching creative writing at Camison College and working as a youth counselor in the Northwest Territories. He eventually relapsed into heroin and cocaine addiction and, in 1999, committed another bank robbery in Victoria, British Columbia, and was sentenced to another 18 years in prison. You can watch an NFB film about Stephen Reed called Inside Time, and he won the Victoria Book Award for his second book, A Crowbar in the Buddhist Garden, Writing from Prison. In January 2008, he was granted day parole. Late in 2010, he was back in prison for violating that parole. Reed had been living at his home in Massett, B.C., when in June 2018, he was admitted to hospital and died five days later of pulmonary edema and a heart blockage. Following Stephen Reed's lead, Paddy Mitchell wrote his own autobiography in prison. He wanted to cash in on the stopwatch gang's infamy, claiming he should have the last word, calling himself, quote, North America's most famous and most successful and most likable bank robber, saying about all the other accounts, fictional or otherwise, quote, nobody's gotten the story right yet. The book was mildly successful, but never the blockbuster Paddy had hoped. Mitchell was diagnosed with lung cancer in 2006 and died on January 14, 2007, in the Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina, in the prison hospital at the age of 64. Lionel Wright was released in 1994, eventually deciding to remain in the prison system, working as a clerk, doing a job that he'd done on the inside. It is easy to point to the exploits of the stopwatch gang as partially inspiring movies like Heat, Dead Presidents, and even more recently, Baby Driver. There are uncanny parallels in video games as well, in particular the heist system in Grand Theft Auto V, which often includes elaborate planning and casing the places to be hit, including time limits. However, the violence in those games does not match what the members of the stopwatch gang claimed was their credo, no one gets hurt. Graham Greene, the host of the Canadian-produced forensics TV show Exhibit A, mentioned in that show about the stopwatch gang that, although they were armed to the teeth, the trio never fired a shot, but, Graham continued to speculate, is that because they were never truly challenged during a robbery? I guess we'll never know. The idea that nobody gets hurt is a fallacy. Many who have been present in bank holdups, especially those where weapons were brandished, have suffered post-traumatic stress injuries that they have had to deal with, sometimes for the rest of their lives. Nobody gets hurt, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know... I think we romance bank rob- robbers in popular culture. Yep. Especially if nobody gets killed because there's a little bit of, I, I think a lot of people, you know, because you see a lot of these movies that you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like, stick it to the man, banks rob from us, right? Yep. yep. But absolutely, I mean, people would be complete. Can you, have you ever had a gun or a knife pulled on you, Mike? I have had someone show me a gun one time. Okay. And it, it was in a threatening manner, yes. Yeah, and I've had a knife pulled on me. It's not fun. Yeah. 
And can you imagine just doity 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 going to the bank to yeah. deposit, you know, whatever. Yep. My, the money for my tooth fairy and having a gun in your face. Yeah. It's horrifying. And my mom worked at a bank, so I always feel for the tellers and banks, right? So your mom worked in a bank. Did she ever see a robbery there? Or? No, I don't think she did. She probably would have told me. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew, I got robbed today. <laughs> yeah. But she worked in a bank years ago. Like, mm -hmm. check this out, Mike. She used to use an abacus and hand calculate people's interests and like write it into the little book and put it on the ledger. Oh, wow. Yeah. Old school. Like abacus, uh, probably not not much used at all anymore. Yeah, probably some of the listeners think it's a transformer. Right. Ab abacus Prime. <laughs> Transform. Transforms from an abacus into, into, a, calculator. into a calculator. <laughs> oh, dear. So what are your thoughts on these three characters? Do you have anything specific maybe that you want to talk about? Well, just generally, I don't understand people like this. No. Right? Sort of, let's just rob our way through life. Right. You know, it's just it's just not, and the flip side of that, it's not a good way to live. No. No matter what you do, I've never stolen anything, except for like when I was a little kid chocolate bar before I even knew better, right? Mm -hmm. But I've never stolen anything. Yeah. And if I did, it'd be like, I'd be like thinking they're going to find me yeah. all the time, right? Yeah. Um, do they, do you think they just didn't think they're going to get caught? Well, I think it was like we've talked about before, the the addiction was so strong, they they just wanted to feed that demon kind of yeah. thing. Uh, we saw that example with Stephen Reed when he relapsed after going straight, mm. after getting out of jail and yeah. ended up robbing another bank in Victoria. Yeah. You know, running in there and I didn't get into the details of it, but he runs in and he says, give me a hundred thousand dollars, you oh. know, and... <laughs> And they gave him 80, 83,000 or something wow. like that. So, but he got, he got caught obviously because A, he's Stephen Reed, a member of the Stopwatch B, gang. B, he's probably jumped up on drugs. Yeah, exactly. So you're and, gonna and, slip up. Right? And that's the thing. Like, had he not had the addiction that he did, yeah. I don't think he would have done those things. He might've done some bad things in his life, but I you're don't right, think. You're right, because he was free and clear for a while there, wasn't yeah. he? Until, until that, uh. Was active again. That dragon raised its head again. Yep. And I've seen that many, many times in people who relapse after years of recovery. Yeah. Uh, they are really far gone very, very quickly and yeah. tend to end up doing the things that they well, say, well, I hadn't done that yet. Well, guess what? Don't, don't, don't they say you, you, you start where you, where you left off? Oh, if that's the case, I'm yeah. probably going to be dead within a week if yeah, I picked up a drink or a drug. Don't do that to me, buddy. No, I don't plan on that. Good. Yeah, so that is it for episode 174, The Stopwatch Gang. That was a fun one, don't you think? Oh, yes, it was. Sorry. <laughs> Now on to voicemails. Uh, you can leave us one at one 327 5786 or one 327 And if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Now, thankfully, this week, because we, uh, we didn't have any calls last week. So people stepped up and called in in droves. And so we have a few of those calls here. And we'll just get started. Oh my God. Hi, this is Linnea Wolf. I live in Black Falls, Alberta. Um, I love listening to your guys' show all the time and I'm actually quite happy to have uh, Matthew guest host because he's got some really good facts and tidbits to come up all the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was listening to today and I heard that you guys had no voicemails to play. So I immediately call and I'm immediately leaving you one <laughs> because you guys rock and that, you know, we need voicemail. <laughs> so anyways, um, I love the show as part of my weekly routine kind of helps me remember what day of the week it is. And also, um, you guys just rock. I, I, I can't say enough good things about the show. Um, it's gotten me through a lot of things in the past year and kept me going. So I would love to see it keep going. So Hopefully you guys have a great day and you can go shit in your head. <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> well, there you go. Thank you so much, Lynette from Thank you. Blackfolds, Alberta. And uh, yeah, it, dark poutine. 
you, you can use this as a calendar because we release on Mondays and an antidepressant. <laughs> How about that? But thank you so much. It was, it was great to hear from you. And uh, maybe when we get to Alberta one day for a, for a, a, a meetup, we can, we can meet you. I want to go to the Chuck Wagon Western theme playground in Blackfold. You do? Yeah. Why? I know because I just saw it on a map. And it sounds cool. <laughs> there you go. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Let's listen to another. Hello, Mike. Good afternoon. Jay McKinnon calling again from St. Paul, Minnesota, formerly of Nova Scotia, Canada. I uh, just wanted to say it's a shame that nobody left you a voicemail last week, so I decided to leave you one myself. Things are still going great and really enjoying the podcast, lad. Uh, can we say that it's finally time to make Matthew not a guest host, air quotes, that you can't see over the phone? Uh, give that guy a job. He's doing great. I like his voice. I like his commentary. I think he needs to be more than a guest. Uh, but take a shit in your hat, fellas, and good luck back there. Still loving the podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, fine sir. <clears throat> Sorry. Wow. Now I'm doing a bad job. Thank you, fine sir. That's very, very, very nice to that, hear. That is very kind. I'm no longer a guest host. Well. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like I said, I, I really have trouble with, with saying somebody is the co-host because of the issues that we've had co-host-wise. And I'm going to like have a complete meltdown in, in a month's time. It's like uh, George Bush said, I, th I think it was the fool me once, uh, <laughs> shame on me. Uh, That's exactly what he said. Fool me twice, don't get fooled again. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that like a quote from a song? Yep. Ah, well. And here's another one. And this one looks like it comes from Victoria, British Columbia. Good afternoon. Uh, this is Gigi from Victoria, BC. I'm just wanting to let you know I just listened to the Lac Megansic uh, broadcast and it brought tears to my eyes, literally. Yeah, well, uh, well done, you guys. Uh, very thoughtful, very, um, very thorough. Uh, thank you again. Je vous remercie beaucoup, mon père est francophone. Thank you. And voici dans ton chapeau. Merci. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's, there's nothing better than being told to go shit in your hat in French because... It just gives it some class. Yeah, it gives it a little bit of cachet. No, thank you that you, you enjoyed that program. I think if you listen again, you'll hear my voice wavering a few times because I find it uh, difficult myself. Yeah, yeah, both of us had a hard time with that. I, when I was recording it, I had to stop and go a few times because it was not easy. Uh, here's another one. Oh, boy. Hi, Mike. Hi, Matthew. My name is Mark. I'm a recently retired guy from Lighthouse Station, New Jersey. And I spend a lot of time out walking, and I love to listen to the two of you just go on and banter and raise up all kinds of things when you get together on Dark Poutine. I, I want to say this. I'm, uh, in retirement now, I'm thinking about uh, volunteering at a local radio station. And I've been listening to a lot of radio, and I must say, Matthew, you have an amazing radio voice. You really should be doing um, voiceovers, or at least have a show on the side. Great that you've got a podcast. Um, but I'm really impressed with uh, the way you come across. And, uh, and Mike, you're not too bad either, not too shabby there. So, um, in the last episode I listened to, you were talking about an H.P. Lovecraft book arriving, and I spent uh, a lot of hours, about six months ago, through in, going through all the collected works. What a what a what a read! <laughs> so, uh, gentlemen, thank you again for all you do. Take care. Talk soon. Well, thank you. I love that New Jersey accent, by the way. Yeah, and it's uh, recently retired. He was saying, yeah. which scares the hell out of me. Yeah, but he sounds like. He's doing what I would do as well, like do something else. You're right. Because I'm, I'm the devil will find work for idle hands. And, and you know me, Mike, I can't not be doing lots of stuff. So keep yourself busy, pal. Yeah. Try to, yeah, try to get on the radio station. That'd be cool. This is kind of my, uh, retirement job, <laughs> which is weird, but, uh, yeah, it is now that I think of it. So, oh, well. 
Next up, we have Lauren from Waterloo, Ontario. Hi, guys. Um, my name's Lauren. I'm from Waterloo, Ontario. I'm currently a student at the University of Waterloo. And um, I just wanted to tell you guys that I love your show so much. I'm really into true crime, and yours is definitely my favorite. Um, Mike, I really appreciate you putting in all this effort every week. Okay. I guess she, she cut herself off. Waterloo. Oh, if it's still there, do me a favor. Are we recording? Yeah. If if it's still there, go to Jimmy's Lunch and, and let me know. It's somewhere in Kitchener, Waterloo. It's this fantastic cafe. Maybe she was so moved by how she felt about my research that either, she just couldn't. Either that or she's just uh, to the point. That could be. I used to live in Kitchener for a little while. Did you? Yeah, Kitchener, Waterloo. There you go. My my uh, cousin is a professor at Waterloo University. Did you know that Kitchener was called Berlin before World War II? Uh, no, I do now. They changed the name. I wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Next up, here's one that looks like it is from Alberta. Hey, Mike and Matt. Uh, I just wanted to call and say that I love your show. This is uh, Angela phoning from Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, I started listening a few months ago on a friend's recommendation. I've been, uh, I've taken up macrame throughout the pandemic and I needed something to, to binge while I do that. So I started on episode one and I just caught up and I have to say I'm sad because I can't binge multiple episodes anymore. And I was, I was kind of sad to catch up because it was just great clicking to the next episode and, uh, and hearing the story. So just wanted to say, Mike, you do an awesome job telling these stories, the compassion that you have. Uh, it's amazing. Um, Matt, you're awesome as a co-host. Love your soothing voice. Keep up the great work, guys, and uh, go take a giant shit in your hats. <laughs> a giant one. Go take an Albertan-sized shit in your hat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you could see it for miles and miles and miles. That's great. Well, thank you so much. That's really great. Um, we love our callers from Alberta, our neighbors uh, just to the east. Yep. And here's our last one. Yeah, this is, wow, seven voicemails this week. Awesome. Hello, my name is Kylie. I'm a student from Montreal. Um, I've been listening to you guys for about two years now, and I really uh, enjoy your podcast Uh so I just wanted to let you guys know, keep up the good work and um, looking forward to your next episode. Have a great night. Thank you, Carly. That was short and to the point. Exactly perfect. Right on. Bang on. Kylie from Montreal, student in Montreal. I wonder what she does in Montreal. Carly or Kylie? Kylie. Kylie. Yeah. She painted that giant mural of um, Leonard Cohen on that building. Oh, that's nice. I love Montreal so much. It's by far my favorite Canadian city. I have never been, and I need to do this. It's so wonderful. Yeah, it it sounds like it's a fantastic place. Mm. And uh, I've been to Quebec City, but I've never been to Montreal. And I've never been to Quebec. Why don't we go? Why don't we do a road trip, and I'll take you to Montreal, and you can take me to Quebec. We could totally do that. That'd be fun. Do maybe do uh, we could do a meetup? Uh, That'd be awesome. A French-Canadian meetup, and both of us could be embarrassed by how little French we know. It, you know, I'm, I'm such a bad Canadian. Yeah. You know, I even, like, it's, I'm, it's, it's, I work for a French company, and I, like, kick myself for not paying attention in school when I was young. Oh, God. So let's uh, start with some patron. Uh, oh, actually. So, yeah, thank you for calling. Please give us a call next week if you didn't call this week at one eight seven seven. 327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. PTN. Yeah, exactly. And we'll play your voicemail on the next show. And let's get on to patrons. So there are some biggies this, this week. Our friend Harry Sims from good old California is back. And Harry comes back at double the prime minister rate which is like amazing. Wow. So I think I need to create a new category. And so Harry will be the governor general from the governor general. Yeah. Yeah. So anybody who's familiar with Commonwealth politics, the governor, governor general is actually a higher spot than the prime minister. Represents the queen. Represents the queen in the Canadian government. Oh, can so, I be the queen? 
<laughs> you are definitely the queen of dark poutine. <laughs> Is that okay for me to say? Because I'm, I don't want to speak. I'm one of your closest friends. You can call me queen okay, anytime you okay. want. <laughs> that is pretty funny. So yeah, thank you so much, Harry. Uh, we're glad to have you back uh, after your awful pandemic nonsense that you went through. And uh, yeah, you are one good egg. And we know that Harry works with uh, in medical care for people. So oh, yeah. That's a lot of work this yep. any day, let alone the last year. Well, thank you so much, Harry. You are a rock star. Thank you, Harry. Next, we have Mika Maxwayne. And Mika, or Micah, is also from Edmonton, Alberta. Edmonton. Edmonton. So what does Mika, I hope I'm pronouncing it right. I don't, it's one of those names, it's M-I-C-A. Would you pronounce that Mika or Micah? I'd say Mika. Okay, so Mika, hopefully we didn't slaughter your name. What does she do there in Edmonton? She is the official person who changes the lights of the Aurora Borealis when some of them go out, so she changed the bulbs. Oh, I didn't know they had bulbs. Yeah. Where do they keep those? In Edmonton, obviously. And in the sky, yeah, so she uses a really tall ladder. Have you ever seen the Northern Lights? I have, yeah. Beautiful. I saw them one time whilst very... Uh, under the influence of psychedelics, it was Are you quite interesting. Sure, you saw the Northern Lights. Yeah. Okay, I was in an airplane once. Oh, really? On the way to, I think it was Kuala Lumpur, and I sort of lifted up the window blind. Everyone was asleep, right? And all this green light was glowing, and it just kept on going. And it was, I was looking around like somebody watches with me, but everyone was asleep. It was so beautiful. It looks like a sheer curtain dancing. Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. It's, it is quite beautiful. Anyway, so she's responsible for all that beauty. Why? Wow. Thanks, Mika. That's amazing. I guess someone's got to do it. Next, we have Alicia Dina Marie. And I don't know where she's from. You don't know where she's from? No. Uh, she teaches creationism um, in her hometown of Darwin, Australia. <laughs> Okay. Wow. Yeah. So I didn't know that they would be teaching creationism in a place named Darwin. Yeah. She just, she thought, you know what? I'm just going to do this because it's so ridiculous. Yeah. What the heck? Does she believe in that stuff? No, I think she's Darwinian. Oh yeah. Just teaching. <laughs> Next we have someone whose name I recognize. Oh. Cheryl Labonte. And she is from York in Prince Edward Island here in Canada. Canada's littlest province. York. Yeah. Do you know Toronto used to be called New York? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Fun fact. Fun fact. And what does Cheryl do there in Prince Edward Island? And I hope it's not work with potatoes because... No, she's an assistant canine patisserer. What is that? She makes dog and cake biscuits. Oh, that's nice. Dog, dog cake biscuit. Dog cake biscuits. You know, our friend Art used to do that professionally as well. Really? Yep. That was his job. Well, she, she studied under Paula Cassidy, who specializes in woofy puffs. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Next, we have Sheila Findlay, and Sheila is from Kelowna, British Columbia. Hello, Sheila. Hi, Sheila. Hello, Sheila. Do you know that song, Sheila Take a Bow? I don't know that song, no. I think it was The Smiths. Sheila Take a Sheila Take a Bow. Ah, The yeah. Smiths. We can listen to uh, Morrissey whinge. <laughs> Girlfriend in a coma, I know. <laughs> so what does Sheila do up there in Kelowna, British Columbia? She works for the Lottery Corporation. Oh. Yeah. Can you imagine like getting paid like an average wage and having to like give people... Like, so she takes the call with people. Oh my God, I won the lottery. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, right? I had to go into the lottery corporation because I won a thousand dollars once. So if you win $999 or more. How long do you have ticket to, can you claim? One year. Thank God. I, I won a thousand dollars three months ago and it's still sitting at my desk. Oh, wow. I know. Yeah. Well, so cash it in. I know. I'm such a dick. But yeah, that's amazing that you have a thousand dollars that you don't have. I know, but it's kind of forced savings, right? I guess so. <laughs> yeah, don't hang on to it too <laughs> and, long. And my dog, Steve, just cost me like 650 last week. Well, guess where that's going. I know. Yeah. Right on the credit card. Right on the Stevie. Well, thank you, Sheila Findlay from Kelowna. 
Next we have Corey Sullivan. That's another name that's familiar to me. And Corey is also from Kelowna, British Columbia. Wow. Wow. I wonder if they know each other. I don't know. They could. That's interesting. But uh, yeah, like um, I, I'm seeing some Yumber Yarders coming through yeah. with some Patreon. So that's kind of cool. You know, one of my colleagues just sold his house in Halifax mm-hmm. because he's been dreaming to move to Kelowna and he's now doing it. Wow. Yeah, he's so excited. People usually go the other way. Yeah, he's moving with the wife and kids and everything. Oh, yeah. 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 Kelowna is beautiful. I would love to live there. That's where my friend Alan lives. Justin and I have rented a place down there a few times. Yeah. You guys plan on going there again soon? Yeah. I mean, we th- we're thinking maybe we should do Tofino or see other parts, right? Mm-hmm. But we just love Kelowna. Yeah, it's beautiful. Next, we have Kawartha Lakes, Ontario. The Kawarthas. Yeah, and it's Todd. Well. Todd is from Kawartha Lakes, Ontario. Hello, Todd. So what does Todd do there in Kawartha Lakes? Todd uh, is a zoo registrar. Oh. Yeah, he, he relocates uh, wild animals all around the world. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. One of our listeners, Kara, does the same thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. Have you ever been to the Quarthas? No. Beautiful. I'd probably love it. Are there big mosquitoes there, though? Texas-sized mosquitoes. Yeah, probably. Next, we have Caesar Bonato. And Caesar is a new prime minister. And Caesar is from Daly City, California. Wow. Yeah. So what does Caesar do there in Daly City, California, or is it Daly City? I guess it's D-A-L-L-Y, so. Is it Daly or Daly City? I don't know. He owns Caesar's Palace. Oh, there's a Caesar's, is it, it's just a lot smaller than the Las Vegas one. Yeah, it's a hot dog stand. No, Caesar's Palace hot dog stand. (laughs) So you can go get a wiener from Caesar. Does he have like a specialty wiener that he sells people or? Uh, I don't know. I like one with a little bit of, of uh, sauerkraut. Okay. Sauerkraut on my wiener. <laughs> so bad. Caesars are a really cool name, actually. It is. Yeah. yeah. My name is probably like the most plain name you can ever have. Michael. Mike. Michael Brown. Like uh Michael, what's your middle name again? Christopher. Michael Christopher Brown. Yeah, I only ever heard that when I was in big trouble. Mm. <laughs> or if I'm a serial killer, you'd hear that too. <laughs> Thanks, Todd. Why do they do that? I, it's I just guess to, just to make it as specific as possible. As specific right? individual, yeah. yep. Next we have Kimberly Layden, and Kimberly is from Concord, California. So that's two Californians in a row. Uh, what does Kimberly do there in Concord? She's a professional yacht racer. Wow. Yes. I would love that. That I have raced yachts in my past when I was mm. uh, in sailing. She won Sydney to Hobart one year. Wow. Yeah, the Rolex one. Yeah. Marblehead, I would like to go to Marblehead. Chester Race Week, I used to go to that back really? in Nova Scotia. But you used to go on the boats and race. Yeah, watch. but I was never, you know, I was never a, a big time sailor. Oh, but you... My friends Gordon and Graham were more into it. And, okay. But I, I did a little bit of it. I wasn't... For Gordon and Graham a couple? No, Gordon and Graham are twins. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. But uh, twins back in Nova Scotia. But we all went to sailing lessons at the Lahave River Yacht Club. Mm. We're going to the yacht club with Chip and Buffy. <laughs> We're going to have some canapes. I want to get I, I want to get a motorboat, not not a not a sailboat, because you know I live on the water down here. I like to do the motorboat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to have a boat. But to moor a boat or store a boat here in Vancouver, it's quite expensive. Well, you know what my mother-in-law says? I don't know what your mother-in-law says. If it floats, flies, or fucks, rent it. Don't buy it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that really does make I sense. I think she means horses by the fucks. <laughs> Our good friend and yumber yarder, Geralee Spence, is back with us. Hello, Geralee. And uh, she is from Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. I know she's transplanted there from Alberta, I do believe. But uh, what does Geralee do back there in Spring Hill? <laughs> Can we do that again? Why? I just, I drew a blank. 
It's okay. You can, I'll just edit this part out. I'm trying to think of something. Spring Hill has a prison. Okay. And Murray is from Spring Hill. Is she? Yes. Yep. Okay. So Jerry Spence from Spring Hill, Nova Scotia. What does she do there in Spring Hill? She has this program where she talked to Anne Murray, the yep. singer, to write in to the to become pen pals with the uh, prisoners in, in, in the prison there. I've done that actually, the pen pal thing. Did you? Yep. Yep. I don't want to get into it because I want the people to remain anonymous. Oh, but so you weren't trying to find a husband or No, anything. I wasn't trying to find a husband. I okay. was just being, you know, someone on the outside that someone on the inside could talk to. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. But, uh, so there you go. That's a good idea. Geralee, what a good egg. And I know she's a good egg. We've known her for a while. So she's a darn good egg. Where is she from originally? Somewhere in Alberta. Alberta. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. She, she likes hunting and fishing and, you know, real outdoorsy type. Art do- art outdoorsy type. Yeah. I grew up in an outdoorsy type family. Yeah, I did not. I'm, now I am not outdoorsy type really. No, you are definitely not. <laughs> You're too fancy to be outdoors. <laughs> if there's no room service, it's camping. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I'm more into glamping myself. That oh. whole idea of like, oh, let's, let's go camping. In a five-star hotel. That's, that's my camping. Oh, that's not even glamping though, is it? That's just staying in a nice hotel. Yeah. I'm a bit of a hotelophile. So I heard, so CrimeCon was over the past weekend and uh, a lot of people were there saying hello and, you know, rubbing it in that I didn't get to go Mm. this year. And it was in, uh, it was in Austin, Texas where I have relatives. So I could have just stayed with them. It would have been super easy, but it can't get across the border. Yeah. So... But next year, it's going to be in Las Vegas. And I love Las Vegas. Do you? Yes. I've been to Las Vegas uh, a number of times. It is quite a fun place. Do you gamble? I don't gamble. Good. No. If I, if I gamble, I, I give myself 50 bucks for the whole time I'm there and I gamble the $50 until it's gone. Okay. Yep. So. I, I was there once. And? Well, first of all, it was great because it ended up, it was like the Mr. Universe contest. Or oh. something. So I was sitting by the pool and all these like dudes, I'm like, whoa, is this Las Vegas? But there's a the thing. And then I won $600 in a slot machine. The very first slot machine I ever did, I put a quarter in, got 600 bucks. What? Got it up to a couple thousand and then lost it all but walked away with a hundred dollars a head well there you go so yeah treasure island the uh the woman i was like hit me again to the woman she's like no honey you don't want to and then i went to this other one that's the bellagio and they just took my money bellagio is a great place it's beautiful in but there. they just took my money i stayed at the really event. good restaurants in that city though oh yeah like really good restaurants you want to go to the best breakfast go to the paris buffet okay in the morning um the paris hotel the buffet there is to die for. Hmm. Really, really good. It's usually pretty busy, so get there early. Um, there we go. That is it. Oh, no, wait, look. Oh. There is another patron hiding in the wings. Did it just pop up? It did. And her name is Melter Skelter. Melter Skelter. <laughs> uh, her real name is Melanie Glenwright, but... Hello, Melanie. I hope we're Skelter. not blowing up your spot. She is from... Melter Skelter is from Winnipeg, Manitoba. The peg. The peg. We get into pegging again. Just. just, I didn't say a word. Yeah. Anyway, what does, what does Melter Skelter do there in the peg? What does she do in the peg? Yep. There's this amazing art gallery. Mm -hmm. The Winnipeg, what's it called though? Winnipeg Art Gallery? Probably. she's a curator there. Well, there you go. Yep. How about that? The building's really cool. It's on this angle. It's awesome. It's on what what kind of angle? It's, it's the building. If I remember correctly, it's like this. So it leans a bit. Yeah, it's sort of this really... Anyway, I can remember liking it when I saw it. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, thank you, Melter Skelter. That's great. We love our patrons. Uh, let's move on to our donut money donors, and we've had a few of those this week. First up, we have... Taylor Pender. And I don't know where Taylor is from. She's from Pender Island. Oh, there you go. 
Taylor says, thank you for this radical podcast. I'm not able to become a patron now, but I'm expecting a raise in a few months, and this is my first stop when that happens. Oh, well, thank you very much. Right. Pender has been uh, afraid to catch up through the show on the show, though been listening since 2019. Fear that it'll run out of episodes. episodes. Yeah, literally a year behind. So there you go. Maybe you'll hear the shout out about this next year. Anyway, go shit in your hats, <laughs> Taylor. Well, thank you so much. I, this is the second time somebody mentioned that. I I love binge listening and watching shows as well. Mm-hmm. Have you ever like slowed down reading a book because you're enjoying it so much you didn't want it to end? Uh, yes. Yeah. Pet Cemetery was like that, Stephen King for okay. me. I loved that book when I was a kid. Mm. It scared the crap out of me. I had to sleep with my lights on. Oh. Uh, next up we have Chris Corbett. And Chris is from Cold Lake, Alberta. Uh, oh, we didn't give Taylor Pender a job, did we? No. What does Taylor do? And where does Taylor live? Well, I said she lives in Pender Island. Oh, right, right. But, but what it, does what does she do for is work? Is there an island called Pender? Yeah, there is. She has a hobby farm. Oh, she has a hobby farm. Yeah. Little, little cows and chickens and sheeps. And goats and things. Goats. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Next up we have from Cold Lake, Alberta, Chris Corbett. Greetings from Cold Lake, uh, Alberta. My wife, Allison, and I, Chris, have been listening to the show for two and a half years or so and have enjoyed all the episodes thus far, especially the Benny Swim episode, like I suggested a while back. So yes, thank you, Chris, for suggesting that episode. He was a distant cousin of his wife's family. So feel free to make up jobs for us in a normal fashion. But if you want the real info, I'm a weapons tech at Canadian Air Force. I was going to say there's a, there's a base near there, isn't it? That's there? right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and we've been posted. Cold Lake. Cold, we've been posted to Cold Lake for a little over three years and headed to Wainwright this summer. Keep up the good work. Hopefully we can turn our daughter Aubrey on to true crime. She doesn't care too much for it now. She's not even two years old yet. So give her time. Well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> a bit young. Yeah, exactly. So. You know, it's interesting. There's a, a, a golf club right across from the base. There you go. So maybe that's what Chris does in uh, for a hobby. Yeah, I want to know, A, does he do that as a hobby? And B, is it distracting when you're about to shoot and a fighter jet flies over your head? Yeah, right? Write in and let be. us know, please. Yeah, so I think Chris is probably, he gathers golf balls close to a grenade range. <laughs> so you don't want to mistake one for the other. Four. <laughs> Um, and Allison, I don't know what his wife Allison does there. What what do you think she does? She keeps him in line. Yeah, well, there you go. That <laughs> sounds like somebody needs to keep Chris in line. <laughs> Thank you to Chris and Allison and little Aubrey. Much appreciated. And uh, next up we have Amanda Ambries. And Amanda says, hey guys, I'm enjoying the changes you made to the show. I'm in Texas. And every time you say double-double in the intro, I think of a double meat, double cheeseburger uh, sandwich. So enjoy a double double on me. And now I think if I remember correctly, a double double in Texas is from a place called Whataburger. 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 And people mispronounce it as Whataburger. 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 I went to Whataburger when I was in Dallas, Texas, uh, okay. two years ago. So yeah. And I think I might've had a double double there with my friends, Shay and Aaron from the ultra, all, all Crime, No Cattle podcast there in uh, Texas. Texas. But if they're having a burger, then there is cattle. Yeah, there was definitely, well, we ate the cattle and then we talked about <laughs> true crime. We went to the, uh, we went to the uh, school book depository where uh, Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy from. And so we got to hang out uh, there. Was that in Texas? It is, yeah. It's in Dallas. Oh yeah, of course it was. Do we? <laughs> Uh, so, uh, we have a lot of listeners from Texas. We do. Or at least people that write in. Yep. I am an SLP. I am super interested in knowing what you think that stands for. Have a fantastic week. What does an, what is an SLP? I'm really curious about, um, an SLP. I think it's a speech and language pathologist. Really? Yeah. I think that's what it really is, if I remember correctly, because I used to work with kids with hearing difficulties. So I okay. remember people with SLP on the end of their their name. So, but maybe it's not. What could it be? 
I was going to say it's something, something, something par- parliamentarian. So, so like Salt Lake parliamentarian or maybe? Salt, Salt Lake parliamentarian. Oh, because of the cattle. Yeah. Oh, there you go. So they get the Salt Lake for the deer and the cattle you, out you, there. Whenever Justin goes jogging. Yeah. And comes back. Steve loves licking his legs and, and, and we always go, salt lick, salt lick. Because he's like a salt lick. Yeah. Well, how about that? Yeah. So I think she's a salt lick par- par- parliamentarian. <laughs> that is pretty funny. <laughs> and you're off to, uh, you're off to Montreal again. Tonight. Tonight. Tonight, tonight. Fly out tonight. Yeah. So I'm off to Montreal then near Beckon, in Beckoncourt near Trois Rivière, and I'm hoping to get out to... Black McGanty. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it depends what happens Friday, but I'm going back once a month, so I'm going to get out there, but I'm planning on it. There you go. Mm. Yeah. That would be a very interesting drive. I, I really want to learn more about the aftermath and how they've rebuilt. Yes. Yeah. It'd be fascinating. And to talk to people there about uh, it. Yeah. You know, I was talking to my friend Meredith about how much I love the region. She's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you're 50. Like, because it's like calm and beautiful out there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, thanks. Thanks a lot, Meredith. (laughs) Thank you so much to all our patrons and donut money donors past and present for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash dark poutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it it would mean a lot to us if you did. You can easily find Dark Routine on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Check out darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please give the time to, please take the time to give Dark Routine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Oh, and one more thing. If you want to buy my book, pre-order my book, you can do that. It would be really great if you did that. Just go to Amazon or Chapters here in Canada or your local bookseller and type in Murder, Madness, and Mayhem and my name, Mike Brown, Brown with an E on the end, and pre-order that book. I bought five. You did? Yeah. That's awesome. No, I'm like, Christmas gifts. There you go. Yeah. I'll sign them for you if you yeah. want to give them out. If you no, order I don't them. want to lower the value. There you go. <laughs> so until we return... Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.